This is the Epilog Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. My Lord, humbly reluctant as the natives of India are to obtrude upon the notice of government the sentiments they entertain on any public measure, there are circumstances when silence would be carrying this respectful feeling to culpable excess. The present rulers of India, coming from a distance of many thousand miles to govern a people whose language, literature, manners, customs and ideas are almost entirely new and strange to them, cannot easily become so intimately acquainted with their real circumstances as the natives of the country are themselves. um, We should therefore be guilty of a gross dereliction of duty to ourselves and afford our rulers just grounds of complaint at our apathy. Did we omit on occasion of importance like the present to supply them with such accurate information as might enable them to devise and adopt measures calculated to be beneficial to the country and thus second by our local knowledge and experience their declared benevolent intentions for its improvement? I was quoting from a letter that Raja Ram Mohan Roy wrote to Lord Amherst. This is Onirban, and you're listening to History Chatter. Ram Mohan Roy, uh, many of you would have heard of. One of um, his most important contributions was uh, to really strengthen the case for the teaching of English and introduction of Western education in India. When we were in school, we would read uh, frequently about his debates, the debates between Anglicists and Orientalists. The Anglicists were those who wanted the British government to introduce Western mode of education in India. The Orientalists were those Indians primarily and also uh, Europeans who wanted the government to encourage the teaching of classical Indian languages and literature such as Sanskrit and Persian. Ramon Roy wrote a number of letters and pamphlets explaining why it was necessary, really, to introduce Western education in India. Today, I wish to read, indeed, selections from such a letter in which he explains why it made no sense for the government to encourage Sanskrit learning in India. Let me quote him again. And here's Raja Ram Mohan Roy. 
the establishment of a new Sanskrit school in Calcutta evinces the laudable desire of government to improve the natives of India by education, a blessing for which they must ever be grateful. And he writes again, when this seminary of learning was proposed, we understood that the government in England had ordered a considerable sum of money to be annually devoted to the instruction of its Indian subjects. While we look forward with pleasing hope to the dawn of knowledge thus promised to the rising generation, our hearts were filled with mingled feelings of delight and gratitude. We already offered up thanks to Providence for inspiring the most generous and enlightened of nations of the West with the glorious ambition of planting in Asia the arts and sciences of modern Europe. But, he writes again, we find that the government are establishing a Sanskrit school under Hindu pundits to impart such knowledge as is already current in India. This seminary, the Sanskrit one that is, can only be expected to load the minds of youth with grammatical niceties and metaphysical distinctions of little or no practical use to the possessors or to society. The pupils will there acquire what was known 2000 years ago with the addition of vain and empty subtleties since then produced by speculative men such as is already commonly taught in all parts of India. The Sanskrit language so difficult that almost a lifetime is necessary for its acquisition is well known to have been for ages a lamentable check to the diffusion of knowledge and the learning concealed under this almost impervious veil is far from sufficient to reward the labor of acquiring it. But if it were thought necessary, to perpetuate this language for the sake of the portion of valuable information it contains. This might be much more easily accomplished by other means than the establishment of a new Sanskrit college. And why does Ramon Roy say that? There have been always and are now numerous professors of Sanskrit. He writes, in the different parts of the country engaged in teaching this language as well as other branches of literature which are to be the object of the new seminary. Therefore, more diligent cultivation, if desirable, would be effectually promoted by holding out premiums and granting certain allowances to their most eminent professors who have already undertaken on their own account to teach them, and would be by such rewards be stimulated to still greater exertion. Now, 
he went on to give examples of the kind of learning that Sanskrit uh, knowledge of Sanskrit imparts to its students. He wrote a paragraph, for instance, on uh, the details of Sanskrit grammar. Here's Ram Mohan Roy. He writes, I beg to state with due deference to your lordship's exalted situation that if the plan now adopted be followed, it will completely defect the object proposed, since no improvement can be expected from inducing young men to consume a dozen of years of the most valuable period of their lives in acquiring the niceties of Vyakaran of Sanskrit grammar. For instance, in learning to discuss such points as the following, Khada, signifying to eat, Khadati, he or she or it eats. Query, whether does Khadati taken as a whole convey the meaning he, she or he eats or are separate parts of this meaning conveyed by distinctions of the words, as if in the English language it were asked how much meaning is there in the eat and how much in the s, and is the whole meaning of the word conveyed by those two portions of it distinctly or by them taken jointly. Neither can much improvement arise from such speculations as the following, which are themes suggested by the Vedanta, for instance. In what manner is the soul absorbed in the deity? What relation does it bear to the divine essence? Nor will youths be fitted to be better members of society by the Vedantic doctrines, which teach them to believe that all visible things have no real existence, that as father, brother, and so on, have no actual entity, they consequently deserve no real affection. And therefore, the sooner we escape from them and leave the world, the better. Again, no essential benefit can be derived by the student of the Mimansa from knowing what it is that makes the killer of a god seamless by pronouncing certain passages of the Vedanta. And what is the real nature and operative influence of passage of the Veda, etc.? The student of the Nyaya Shastra cannot be said to have improved his mind after he has learned from it into how many ideal classes the objects in the universe are divided and what speculative relation the soul bears to the body, the body to the soul, the eye to the ear, and so on. In order to enable your lordship to appreciate the utility of encouraging such imaginary learning as above characterized, I beg your lordship will be pleased to compare the state of science and literature in Europe before the time of Lord Beacon with the progress of knowledge made since he wrote. He goes on, in fact, to... to um, offer a comparison of the changes that came in the teaching, the pedagogy of the West since Bacon. And he, he compares uh, the Sanskrit system 
let me quote Ram Mohan Roy again. If it had been intended to keep the British nation in ignorance of real knowledge, the Baconian philosophy would not have been allowed to displace the system of the schoolmen, which was the best calculated to perpetuate ignorance. In the same manner, the Sanskrit system of education would be the best calculated to keep this country in darkness. If such had been the policy of the British legislature, but as the improvement of the native population is the object of the government, it will consequently promote a more liberal and enlightened system of instruction, embracing mathematics, natural philosophy, chemistry, anatomy, and with useful sciences, which may be accomplished with the sums proposed by employing a few gentlemen of talent and learning educated in Europe and providing a college furnished with necessary books, instruments, and other apparatus. Clearly, Ram Mohan Roy was comparing the old Sanskrit education to an obsolete and redundant system of medieval darkness. Now, we could always debate uh, whether or not he was right, whether or not uh, letters such as this rang the death knell, really, on Sanskrit education, whether or not uh, later India and its character and its people were changed thoroughly in terms of their understanding of the world and uh, beyond. But the fact remains that Roy, in being the first major and articulate Indian to emphasize the redundancy of a Sanskrit learning, clearly influenced the course of subsequent Indian history more, perhaps, than any other Indian of his time. We will, of course, have more occasion to, to um, explore some of these changes and other changes as we go along. But I was happy in this episode, really, to present before you the voice of one of the pioneers of modern India. One of the objects of this podcast is also to expose you to what is called primary documents. In almost uh, reading verbatim, the letter of Ram Mohan Roy I hoped really to give to you a sense of the language, the mentality, and the objective, the intellectual bent and the mind of Raja Ram Mohan Roy. This is certainly not an adequate sample. Most of you, many of you who may be interested can and will be happy and excited to look up his collected works. I'll be back with... Uh, a similar episode next week. Till then, this is Onirban signing off from History Chatter this week.